Welcome to the Outthinker Podcast. Each week, we talk with forward-looking strategists and innovators that are challenging the status quo, leading the future of business, and shaping our world. I'm your host, Kyan Krippendorf, founder of the Outthinker Strategy Network. Bruce Usher is a professor of professional practice and the faculty director of the Tamer Center for Social Enterprise at Columbia Business School. He teaches on the intersection of finance, social, and environmental issues and is the recipient of the Singvi Prize for Scholarship in the Classroom, the Lear Award, and the Dean's Award for Teaching Excellence. In 2019, Bruce published Renewable Energy, a Primer for the 21st Century, the first in the Earth Institute Sustainability series of books. His latest book, is Investing in the Era of Climate Change. I found it fascinating. He's also written numerous cases for use in business school courses with a primary focus on climate change and business. Prior to joining Columbia University, Bruce was the CEO of EcoSecurities Group PLC, which developed greenhouse gas emission reduction projects in developing countries. That company completed an IPO in 2005 and was acquired by JP Morgan in 2009. He was previously the co-founder and CEO of Treasury Connect, which provided electronic trading solutions to banks and was acquired in 2001. Prior to that, he worked in financial services for 12 years in New York and Tokyo. He is an active investor and advisor to entrepreneurial ventures focused on climate change and clean energy and is the chair of the Tamer Fund for Social Ventures. In this podcast, he shares why and how a climate catastrophe can be avoided and why investors and businesses play a central role in avoiding it. Which of the remarkable advances in energy technology forward-looking investors are pouring money into and which are likely to have the greatest impact. Why clean energy is about to become remarkably inexpensive and what the implications might be for your business and for industries around the world. Ladies and gentlemen, Bruce Usher. Bruce, thank you so much for being here with us. It's great to have you here. My pleasure. Thank you. So I want to open it with a question that I ask everyone, which is complete the sentence for me, if you don't mind. If you really know me, you know that. I love to teach MBA students. Really? And why is that? That's my job. And so that sounds a little, you know, self-serving to make that statement, but it's true. And there's a simple reason for that, which is the secret of teaching is that every time, again, from the class, I walk away having learned something. I'm learning from my students. It's almost like I'm getting paid to make myself smarter. It's extraordinary privilege. It's also a lot of fun to teach them. But in all seriousness, I love it because I'm walking away knowing more than I do when I get in the classroom. I think it was Ben Franklin that said, teaching is learning twice or something like that. Is it more that you preparing forces you to think or them asking you questions forces you to think or both? It's both. The process of preparing, you certainly have to, it's not just that you're learning the process, but you're forcing yourself to be able to explain why things are as they are. We take a lot for granted. We just know this is the way the world is. But when you have to actually get up and say that, that process is a real learning event. In the classroom itself, it's a different story. In the classroom, it's about the dialogue with the students. The students are asking questions, they're making statements. That's where that learning comes in. And you never know, in a business school classroom, a lot of it's a Socratic teaching method. Using cases, we're having dialogue with our students. You don't always know where that discussion is going to go, but that's where the learning is. And that's why I enjoy it. Yes, on both sides. Yep. 
Beautiful. What's your definition of strategy? So my definition of strategy is preparing an organization for the future. We know how to compete in the present. We know what our business is today, what our market share is today, what our assets are, what our strengths are, and so on. Strategy is what are we going to do in the future? How are we going to compete in the future? How are we going to win? That's the exciting part. And what I love about your work, especially your most current work, is that we in how are we going to win in the future is usually defined by the unit measure is the company. And here you're talking about the unit measure of the company, but also society and the world. I think that's a beautiful expansion of the application of strategy. What got you interested? I know strategy is one part of what you study and are interested in, but what got you interested in strategy? So practically speaking, I became interested in strategy having run several businesses. So I was originally in finance. I worked on Wall Street and then I became an entrepreneur. I joined a colleague and we started a financial boutique. And when you're running a firm, even a very small firm, you have to have some strategy to compete, to succeed in the future. So we started becoming interested in this and you start to design for that. I ended up running three firms over about 15 years. And each one of those very different firms, financial services and a technology company, and then one that actually used business to address climate change. And each time you've got to think very hard about your strategy. And in fact, I would say leadership roles in any company, it's primarily about strategy and making the right decisions. So then what motivated, because what at least I know you for is using business strategies and capitalism to solve social environmental challenges. What got you interested in it? Maybe you could tell us when did you make that shift? Yeah. So I was late to make that shift. I was slow to make that shift. I went to business school because I wanted to learn to be really good at business and let me be blunt to make a lot of money and be successful. When I graduated from business school, this is 1992, what we learned was shareholder value maximization, Milton Friedman's core concepts. And we learned them and we believed them and they worked. They worked really well. But at some point in my career, I started to learn a couple of things. One is there is more to life than shoulder value maximization. And two, and what was more interesting to me was that the same tools I learned in business school to maximize shareholder value, those same tools can be used to create social environmental change. And that came to me about 20 years ago. I had the opportunity to become CEO of a very small company called Eco Securities. They were working on financing emission reduction projects to address climate change. And this is back in 2002. So 20 years ago, early days in climate change. And it was an epiphany to me that if you invested capital and applied business practices, you could in fact have a very big social environmental impact. In this case, we could reduce greenhouse gas emissions at low cost and we could do it quickly and we could do it at scale and we can really make a difference and we could do it profitably. So we can also have shareholder value maximization. Now, this isn't always feasible. It doesn't work in every sector, every company. It isn't always a good idea. There are certain social environmental things that business is not designed to address. It's not realistic. But there are situations where it is. And my core area of focus today is climate change. That's the issue I focus on. And to me, there's no question that business doesn't just have a role to address this. Business is the solution to climate change. We don't really have any other way of doing this. Yeah. Can you unpack that for us? You know, we've had Chris Marcus here. It's not his concept, but he introduced this idea of universal ownership theory. I know there's always this dilemma between the short-termism of investors and the long-term payoff. Why is it that now business and capitalistic motivated behavior could be a force to help us address climate change? What's changed? That's a key question. Why now? Because scientists have known about climate change and warned us about climate change for several decades now. James Hansen, who's a Columbia University scientist, he went in front of Congress in 1988, warned about global warming and climate change. So it's not like we haven't known about the problem. Business has not had a role to play until pretty recently. I got involved 20 years ago in addressing climate change. And the truth of the matter is, at 
that point in time, there were very few opportunities for business and investors to address this issue. And the reason for that was very simple. It wasn't because people didn't want to. It's not because people were unaware. We were becoming aware. It's because there was nothing to invest in. There were very few opportunities out there. Renewable energy, solar and wind, uncompetitive. Couldn't build a business around that or very small niches. Electric vehicles, I mean, you could invest in golf carts. There were no businesses to build. Okay, here we are in 2022, and that has changed dramatically. We can say that there are really two types of businesses out there for climate solutions. One type are businesses that compete with products that are already commercial and at scale. And that's essentially renewable energy, electric vehicles, electric transportation. Those industries are already competitive. And it's just a question about further scaling them. So we have that. That's that whole sector. And actually, if you add that up, that gets us about halfway to reducing emissions to address climate change. Just one clarification. I know the answer to this, but I'm still asking. Are you talking about reversing climate change or stopping climate change? Science today is very accurate on this issue. We understand this issue very well. The planet is warming and it will continue to warm. But we don't want to warm it more than about one and a half to two degrees Celsius. Beyond that, we enter what is termed catastrophic climate change. We need to avoid that at all costs because things can get very, very ugly at that point. The science informs us that in order to avoid catastrophic climate change, we need to reduce emissions of greenhouse gases globally to zero by 2050, no later than 2070. So we have something like three to five decades to do that. It's not a lot of time, but it is feasible. And it's not feasible as sort of a wishful, hopeful, feasible. I'm talking about actually the products exist already to get us halfway there. They're commercial and scalable. And the other half, which is a lot, are under development. Venture capitalists rapidly funding green hydrogen, and carbon capture, and some very advanced energy storage and advanced nuclear and things like this that will get us the other half. So what do we need to avoid catastrophic climate change? We got to get to zero. Zero is a hard number. We've spent 300 years going from zero to where we are today. We built our entire global economic system around that. That's worked pretty well. Let's be honest, there's some valid criticism. It's almost like the earth has been a big battery and we discovered that it was charged, right? And now we've just been discharging this battery. Yeah, running it down. Running it down. Yeah. You know, we've put all this garbage up in the atmosphere, these pollutants up there. Climate change is what we call a tragedy of the commons, right? We share this commons and we've been polluting this commons. And it didn't matter when the commons is very large, it's the whole atmosphere. And, you know, we don't pollute that much every year when we were very small. Well, we've kind of filled it up. And so now we got to empty it out. Yeah. Just to help us visualize, could you give us some examples of your favorite investors or funds or technologies or entrepreneurs that you're excited about that can show this flow of investment towards solutions? So when we think about business and climate change, I step back and I go, what's business good at? Business is really good at two things. It's really good at innovation and it's really good at scale. Very different types of business or, you know, very different skill sets. Let's have the skill side first, because that's what we already know. You look at a company like Tesla, which hasn't just scaled on their own, which is pretty dramatic coming from nowhere. But now the entire automobile industry is scaling into electrics. And when you look at GM and Ford and every other company, it's all about that scale push. I don't have a specific company. I would say this is the one that's going to win in that sector. But I would say that that whole sector transformation is very exciting to me. That's on the scale side. And then we could say the same for renewable wind and solar. On the innovation side, the sectors that are very exciting, uh, green hydrogen. So green hydrogen is creating hydrogen. Hydrogen is the most common element in the universe, but it's always combined with something else. So hydrogen, oxygen gives us water, for example. 
Well, hydrogen is also a really useful gas. You can use it in steel plants, you can use it in transportation, you can use it in aircraft, you can use it in so many different ways. But you need to capture it by splitting it from water or capturing it from the atmosphere. And historically, that's been costly to do, and we do it with fossil fuels. So we do it by polluting way. Green hydrogen is using renewables, which don't emit greenhouse gases, to split water to create hydrogen. This technology has been around for a number of years. The reason why it's exciting today is that the cost of renewables, solar and wind, is now so cheap. Let me just give you a sense of it. I pay 25 cents a kilowatt hour here for electric my power here in New York City. Now, New York's a little expensive on a lot of metrics, but they are producing power using clean energy today in the U.S. for about three to four cents per hour. And in some parts of the world, there are projects going on, project in the Middle East at the moment, that just over a penny kilowatt hour. We're getting to the point where energy is almost free. What can you do with that energy? Well, one of the things you can do is split water and produce green hydrogen. Green because it doesn't create greenhouse gases. Now you have this gas hydrogen, which is so useful to the economy. The opportunity here is exciting because from a climate perspective, we have all this clean power. But from a business perspective, this requires rebuilding our entire energy system, pipelines, transportation, everything changes at that point. I'm a very distant observer and no way an expert, but you're kind of triggering something that I've read, which is something that Korea is doing to shift towards a hydrogen-based. Can you tell us about that? That's right. Yeah. So Korea, Japan, you really get economies like this, which are limited land mass, limited fossil fuels, or very few fossil fuels, and they're concerned about climate change. And they look to this future and they go, how's this world changing? Well, we can think about this in two ways. One, we can think about it from the environmental perspective, climate change. We should be concerned about climate change. But then we can also think about it from our own sort of strategic perspective. And if you're Korea or Japan and you look at this opportunity, you go, this is exciting. This presents potential for energy security. This presents potential for our industries, which are energy intense, to use a fuel that's cheaper, that we can create here, that's abundant, and give us strategic advantage in our core industries going forward. Think about steel, for example, or automobile manufacturing in South Korea. So these changes that are occurring are exciting from a climate perspective, but from a business strategy perspective, in some ways, this is even more impactful. And these changes are going to happen. That doesn't mean that green hydrogen is going to dominate the future. I don't know. This is early stage innovation. But I do know that climate change is going to be the driving force in business for the next 30 years. Interesting. So then let's pick up on there because I love your work. And we had Jonathan Nee from Columbia Business School here as well. And I love what both of you guys come at strategy from a financial markets perspective. And so I, reading your book, I can kind of understand if I'm an investor, I can think about where to place bets to be part of this. I could think if I'm an entrepreneur, but let's say, I don't know, I'm a bank, I'm a retail. Surely if I'm manufacturing cars, I can lean into EVs and that system, but I'm an industrial company. How should I be thinking about what you just said, that climate change will be the dominant influence in business strategy for the next 30 years? You should think about it in two ways. The first is think about the physical changes that are occurring from climate change. And for most businesses, this is not actually the major issue. But for us as humans, the physical change is big. And the physical is what they call acute changes. This is wildfires and hurricanes, the things that make the news. And then the chronic physical changes, you know, rising sea levels and flooding. That's the big one from the human perspective. From the business perspective, it's actually what we call the transitional changes that are really going to matter. And the transitional include government regulations. So we saw the recent Inflation Reduction Act. It's a huge deal. This changes business opportunities, right? Transitional, the biggest one of all is probably technologies. We see technology change. Again, back to the example of electric vehicles, right? This is changing an entire sector. So if you're in that sector, these changing technologies are going to strand certain assets as it stranded the horse and buggy a century ago. It's stranding the internal combustion engine. The third big transitional change are around social norms and reputational changes. 
companies are very susceptible to that and need to be aware of what are the social norms that are changing and how do they position themselves for that. And they need to be particularly careful because the risk for companies is if they're slow to it, of course, their reputations can suffer. But if they're too aggressive in a way that they can't then back up, they can't back up their words with actions, they'll get called out for greenwashing. That's not good either. So they need to be very careful about the path they go. Got it. Yes. You've just opened up so many questions and I know we have limited time with you. So I'm going to forge forward rather than try to follow down that. So thinking about this, what do most people get wrong? What's the assumption that most people have that's not right? The assumption that's made is that we are further behind at addressing climate change than we actually are. The assumption that's been made is that not doing anything about it, we're failing to tackle climate change. And some people would now conclude it's hopeless. We cannot tackle climate change. The truth of the matter is that we are in a tight spot. 300 years of remitting greenhouse gases, we've got about 30 years to reverse that and get rid of all the gas we put up there. We back ourselves in the corner. The thing that people don't get is that the tools we need to reduce these emissions, what I call climate solutions in the book I wrote, like renewable energy, have improved so much in recent years. They're so competitive, both in terms of cost and performance. Anyone who's driven an electric vehicle recently says, this is a better driving car. I want that car. These products exist today and are now at scale that we now have the solutions we didn't have before. And so in many ways, while the window's gotten smaller, we have less time to address it. We're actually in a better position to address climate change than we were a decade or two ago. And I think that's what's missed. We're in a better position. We can address climate change. That doesn't mean, by the way, we will. At least now we can. Right, right. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Like there's such a gap between what we can do and what we will do. Tesla showing that we could, we probably could, but we weren't going to. That's a very common pattern. And now it really, really matters. Again, I've got so many questions, but I know we're reaching the top of our time with you. So for people who've heard this and say, okay, I want to engage with you, with your work, what's their next step? What should they do? Well, just put it right out there. Buy my book. (laughs) Investing in the Era of Climate Change is my second book. I wrote a book on renewable energy about three, four years ago. And if you're in business, when you work on your strategy, make sure you do incorporate climate change into that strategy. And if you're an investor, and most everybody is an investor at the personal level or the institutional level, in your investment strategy, think about how you incorporate this. There's two reasons for doing that, whether business or investor. And the first reason is the obvious, which is businesses that lead on this, investors that lead on this are going to help us decarbonize and help us avoid catastrophic climate change. So for humanity's sake, it's the right thing to do. But there's another more practical reason. It's going to be the right thing for you as a business leader or as an investor, because you're going to do better. Climate change is going to change business for the next 30 to 50 years. Whether or not you believe in climate change is kind of irrelevant at this point. It's just physics. You can disbelieve physics. <laughs> it's not going to change things like gravity. It's not going to change climate change. So you want to be on top of it for your own good as well as the good of humanity. Yeah. Fascinating. So I can imagine we zoom out 30 years from now and envision all the implications and entailments, which are going to hard to do because you said for 300 years, we've built this system on fossil fuels and envisioning that gives clarity. There's a simple analogy I'll just mention at the end, which is, you know, I graduated from business school 30 years ago. And when I graduate then, if someone had whispered in my ear and said, in the next 30 years, the thing that's going to change business more than anything else is going to be digital technologies. Digital technology is going to change not just, you know, one company like the phone, but it changes everything. And it really has. There's almost nothing, even the book I just wrote, which is a physical book, we sell it online. That's digital technology. What I'm whispering, but I'm not whispering, I'm saying loudly, and I'm not alone. 
the next 30 years, the biggest influence on business is going to be climate change. Yeah, that puts it in perspective. And I really enjoyed your book and listening to other lectures you've given. Highly encouraged. And I hope everyone here reads this book for themselves, but also for all of us. And thank you for the work that you do and for sharing it with us, Bruce. Thank you. You too. It's been a real pleasure talking. Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our producers, Karina Reyes and Zach Nest, our editor, and the rest of the team. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. I'm your host, Kaihan Krippendorf. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week with another episode of Outthinkers.